0: My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Another episode of the Latter Day Saint MBA podcast, and today we're welcoming in uh, John Keller. Welcome.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. I, now you uh, were cornered by by Adam. Is that right? Who's uh, part? Of, he, he helps uh, align some guests, and he's part of the the operations here at the uh, Latter Day Saint MBA Society. And uh, and you agreed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Adam's, uh, Adam's a very gregarious person. He's hard to say no to. So
0: (laughs) very good. And, uh, when people ask you, uh, what you do for work, what do you tell them?
1: know, if they ask me, I'll tell them usually that, uh, I'm an entrepreneur and right now I'm in software is usually the the fast answer.
0: Okay. Software. So that could be anything, right? So, um, and what, uh, is there a specific industry you help through your software?
1: Yeah. So uh, right now, I'm uh, the company that we're building is called Redlist. And it's a SaaS platform. So it's a software as a service that we use to help maintain equipment and certifications of the people who use that equipment. And also to kind of help with their scheduling and their kind of safety collaboration. So it's not the sexiest of industries, right? But it's the type of industry that really makes the world move. So if you've ever, so our customers are companies like in the mining industry, uh, oil and gas, construction. Uh, You know, here in Utah, if you're, there's probably anybody who just drives on I-15 up and down the corridor is going to be driving next to or past um some of our customers so just yeah the industry if there's a big piece of equipment that re- is required to run for people's business to keep working uh they're running there's a good chance that they're they're running on red list so
0: nice and, and so uh, obviously you know you, you found a niche there that to expand a, a successful business and uh, how did you was there uh, an obvious path to that or something you tripped over or
1: I think uh, the obvious path for me like I've I've uh, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur I've been involved in uh, various startups and kind of that stage of high growth for yeah. about the last 15 years and um, for me business really is about people it's like businesses wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people as much as people can be frustrating at times like <laughs> that's why business exists and so in the process of doing that about uh, about nine years ago I was looking to kind of get in double down on some on uh, another business as an operator. And uh I met with Talmadge Wagstaff. So if you ever if you've ever seen Wagstaff cranes yeah, sure. along the side of the freeway or you know putting a giant cooling tower on top of a tall building. Um so that's that's his family's business. We met about nine years ago. I started initially as kind of this skeptical investor, like when he was throwing out this idea of Red List this you know, there's this major gaps in how heavy industry is currently serviced today, and nobody's solving it. And it's a trillion dollar industry. And you know, you hear all these types of things. You you smoke the hookah with other entrepreneurs, and you think it could happen. And after working with Tal, little by little, um, you know, his, his he's grown up in it. He was a field engineer for Exxon Mobil, um, so it's, it's in his it's in his blood, and it's also in his his personal experience. And so after after kind of working with Hal for several years, kind of just in the early co-founding stages of testing the idea out, I became a, a big believer. And I'm primarily over the kind of the, the operations, let's say, I do a lot of business development, so sales, marketing, operations for our little company. And uh, And he's really kind of the visionary over the product and the application of it in the field. So he's an engineer and he's got an exceptional mind and he's really fun to work with, so. Nice. I
0: feel really lucky. Nice. And uh, where did you, uh, where were you born and raised?
1: I was actually born and raised just here in Utah. So oh, in cool. Salt Lake, in a place of Salt Lake called Rose Park. I don't know oh, if, yeah. anyone, if you've ever heard sure. of that place
0: before, but. Yeah, I, I grew up in West Valley. So it's either Rose Park or West Valley that gets all the, the grief. Yeah, I represent right? there. No, that's <laughs>
1: true. They say you can take the boy out of West Valley. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. And uh, so did you go to uh, West High then or?
1: I did. I did. I went to West high. I graduated in 99. Um, when I graduated high school, I was like, had a couple of very specific plans. I was certain I was gonna, I was gonna maybe, uh, go be a bum in Europe and try to learn some romance languages and maybe come back and work my way up the Taco Bell corporate ladder. That was, (laughs) if you were to talk to me at age 18, that would have absolutely been my path. And, um, I got called on a mission. I served a mission in Bangkok, Thailand,
0: not Europe, huh? You were no, you no, together not. for I Europe.
1: Like, I was like, <laughs> Thailand, isn't that like an Island off of South America somewhere? I thought for sure I'd speak <laughs> Spanish at least, and, uh, but yeah, I got called to Thailand. And while I was out in Thailand, um, you know, I always wanted to do something that kind of, I don't know. Like I said, I in high school, I like got involved in DECA and all these business things. And I was like, I'm going to go the corporate ladder when I was in Thailand I wanted to make a big difference, you know, here, there you are, you're, you're out telling everybody about the grace of God all day long and they're still living in squalor and it's not an awesome, there's a lot of hard things in, in life in some of these countries. And I was like, I want to make a difference. And, and throughout my mission I was always looking around to see who was really making a difference. Mm-hmm. And I met with lots of different groups from different nonprofits all over. Uh, and one of the things that really struck me was that no matter what, remote village I was in, um, you'd find some nonprofit trying to make a difference, but they seemed like they were always struggling, hmm. but I could always find an ice cold bottle of Coca-Cola. Huh. Yeah. And so I was like, man, these guys have figured it out. Somehow they're making things move in these remote places. Like, so I kind of, I don't know. I got, I really caught the bug. I mean, I had a bug for business before my mission, but after mission, I was like, oh, I caught the bug for saying business is a great vehicle to make a difference. And I want to do that. And I think a mission teaches you, you can do hard things. So I, um, I had met a lot of people and who kind of opened my heart and my mind to this idea of entrepreneurship and I've kind of been running ever since.
0: Yeah. And, And let's go back even further, just in your growing up years. Uh, how would you describe those or put those into context? Uh,
1: my house was the home of the fast and the hungry, I guess you'd say, so I was fourth of thirteen kids. I grew wow. up. Uh, our house was probably like I don't know, eighteen, nineteen hundred square feet, something like that. Um, we were in a neighborhood where, you know, very very diverse neighborhood. Um, I would say it wasn't. I would say that English as a first language might have was probably was maybe in the minority in that neighborhood mm-hmm. growing up. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like there was English to Spanish. I mean, there was the first Polynesian steak was like two blocks from my house or three blocks from my house uh, here in Utah. And, and there was just a lot of diversity and a lot of I grew up a very free range parent with two very different. I mean, a free range child with two very different parents. Right. One of them was an engineer, kind of very analytical. The other one was a farmer, very like um, emotional kind of thinking with her heart more than uh-huh. math, you know? So your dad was the engineer? My dad was the engineer, hardcore okay. engineer. Like I still think when I left to go on my mission and there was, you know, 12 of us in the family, I still think our family budget for groceries was like 150 bucks a month. I might oh, wow. be off on that, but I mean, it was like my mom could stretch a penny and my dad could divide it and conquer it. I assure you. <laughs>
0: Holy cow. Wow. So uh, did you, how did your parents, you know, you talk, so did your mom grow up on a farm or did she actually, because I, I know Rose Rose Park isn't a farming area. But no, she, uh, she grew
1: up on a farm. Like she grew up in a place called Panaca, Nevada, if you've ever heard of Panaca. Never. You go to Cedar City and you just head west, like almost directly west, about an hour and a half, you end up mm-hmm. right across the border in this little town, kind of built around some springs and some mining stuff. So, so Panaka is where she grew up. She grew up as the, uh, let's see the, she was the, I think she, I want to say she was the fourth. She might've been the sixth. Anyways, there's, she had a big family. There was 11 of them in her family. And my mom was, uh, you know, her, her mom died of cancer when she was like 14.
0: Hmm.
1: And that was like a long battle. And so she was always kind of like a little mom in her home. She was always in charge, like, she was like the, a very responsible member of her family, always helping out her parents. And then her dad actually passed away about a year and a half later of a stroke. Oh, wow. And so she was, she kind of found herself. She always wanted a, a big family. She had raised a big family. I think my mom has been a mom of a big family since she was probably like seven. So that's like her world. That's what she knows is what she sees. She's given everything for her family. I deeply respect that. I'm so grateful for that. Um, but it's very different from my dad. My dad came from the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, He was born in a family with two kids and his dad kind of equated large families uh, with poverty. Like if you have a big family, you must not figure out why you're having a big family. Like you shouldn't have a big family. You should have a small family, right? That was Mm -hmm. kind of the thing. So I grew up really in this juxtaposed world with a, a dad who was super analytical but also very reliable i had no idea how reliable he was so i've gotten older and realized he's like almost superhuman in his reliability and then a mom who just knew how to love and was not organized was not really that wasn't her thing her thing was love you know my dad's thing was organization and numbers and being where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there so um and i'm probably of all my the kids in my family i'm I'm seem to be the one that has a lot of my dad in me, but also a lot of my mom. My dad always had a briefcase. My dad had a pocket protector. This is yeah. not exaggeration. Like pencil, <laughs> pen, eraser that goes up and down. You know, uh-huh. that was my dad. And uh, and everything was perfectly organized. And my mom always had a big purse that you just had to rummage through forever to find whatever tissue or or stick of gum you were looking for. Right. So. Yeah. In my world today, I have some things that seem very organized, but if you open them up, it looks like my mom's purse.
0: Nice. <laughs> so, I mean, during those those young years, were you, you know, you say you're a free-range kid, were you just trying to survive and have some fun, or was there uh, was there any, like, direction in, in your life at the time as far as, like, where your life was headed?
1: That's a great point. That's a great question. I mean, I, I would say my mom – and dad were extremely intentional in their parenting, right? So um, if there was ever, so we had, we had home evening, you know, pretty regularly and we actually ate dinner together quite often, right? Most of the time we ate dinner together. Um, So there was always, and like I said, my, my mom was, very much a loving parent. And the way that she taught was often from the scriptures. So if you stepped out of line uh, growing up, like my dad, he came from a very Germanic background. So he was very, um, he had a very physical way of putting you back in line. <laughs> and my mom was like, man, if you stepped out of line, you're going to go read the Book of Mormon with her for like an hour and a half. And, they're, and I'm telling you, I'd way rather take the physical sometimes because the Book of Mormon for an hour and a half sometimes is like, oh, man, that is like so much. And it's funny because a lot of people are like, oh, man, she did that. You probably hate the Book of Mormon. I'm like, no, actually, I love Book of Mormon. It's like the coolest yeah. book. Uh, but I will tell you, I did get kicked out of a lot of seminary classes because I learned the Book of Mormon very, very well growing up. I could tell you lots of different things about the Book of Mormon because I spent so much time in it for my punishment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, but it actually, but in the end, I mean, like, so I, I did have a lot of structure there, but uh, we were like the Sandlot kind of growing up. Like you leave yeah. the house, you know, like uh, we'd go play. We weren't like the Sandlot where it was just a friendly game of baseball. Like, but in my neighborhood, it was very common. We'd get together. We'd, the kids would all come together in a Sandlot fashion. We'd play a game of uh, football usually. And then it usually ended in some kind of fist fight because somebody ripped somebody's shirt. <laughs> and uh, it was very much what you might expect from kind of the suburbs of uh, there in Rose park, a lot of, a lot yes. of fighting. That was a very common part of my growing up experience and a lot of, throwing, so, you know, getting work outside the house as soon as I could. So I could get money to do the things I wanted to do. That was yeah. pretty common. Yeah.
0: So were you uh entrepreneurial minded as a, as a kid hustling around the neighborhood or anything?
1: You know, I, I, I was, I think my parents tried to instill it in us early on. like, my parents kind of had this great idea that we could go and start roto tilling. If you're familiar with what that, is you're gonna kind of go through the neighborhood and roto till people's gardens for them. So we like it was funny because again, my uh, my parents aren't. My dad's kind of risk averse. My parents are very both risk averse in many regards. So they taught us, "Let's get a roto tiller." We we pulled money out of our savings that we had and we each invested me and my two brothers each invested a hundred dollars in our first rototiller. <laughs> and it was, you know, we, we'd go to do a rototiller. We'd go to somebody's yard to kind of get their garden. And I remember they'd offer us like 30 bucks and we'd be like, Oh man, this is so much money. And we'd come home. My parents like, you can't take $30 from somebody. That's way too much money. Go give it back. Oh, right. wow! Okay. <laughs> so we'd go get back like 20 bucks or whatever and then we come back and they say, okay now you made ten dollars but we got to make sure to put some in savings and some in tithing and some in spending you know <laughs> and so we'd pretty much we make so we did that for like three years i think we ended in the hole after three years of rototilling we never made a penny on <laughs> i think we still owe our parents like 50 bucks each back for our savings <laughs> uh, but it was funny. so we did that a little bit and i along the way i started realizing well, man if i make some money if i could find ways to make money um then i could get some of the things i wanted in life and so i did with one of my buddies in fifth grade we partnered up and we first of all we started this thing called no let's just say we partnered up the short story is we started selling candy at school and okay. uh and man i i used to commute i took the public bus from age eight at uh, I took the bus 18 to downtown Salt Lake. I would cross through downtown, and then I would go up to the avenues in Salt Lake, Second Ave, Third Ave, and E and D Street. There's a a school there called Lowell Elementary. So I would take I had this long commute on the bus, and I would go to whatever stores I could and try to buy candy for 10 or 12 cents a box back in the day. I would buy Boston baked beans for like you know <laughs> five for a dollar or whatever yeah. you know, um, and I try to go and sell those wherever I could to anybody who would take them for, you know, 25 cents or 50 cents a box, you know, I didn't tell my parents too much about that. Cause if they knew I was buying something for 10 cents and selling it for 50 cents, I was going to have to give some money back. <laughs> so I was like, so, so I did that. And, uh, and then they started picking up scrap aluminum when they were doing neighborhood cleanups and stuff. So I started doing that and we, I'd throw newspapers. My first real official job was I worked at the Arctic Circle at age 14. I would sweep their parking lot for, uh, you know, of all the cigarette butts and everything in yeah. exchange for Rancho meal coupons. If oh, I could yeah. do it. So, could <laughs> so I definitely, there was a lot of that kind of stuff growing up for yeah, sure. I love it.
0: So you mentioned that you go on your mission and that's sort of coming back through your mission. You, did, you sort of felt like you were more locked into sort of the, the, the potential and, uh, of, of your future.
1: Yeah. You know, I think on a mission for me, like, you know, I realized I could do hard things. I realized that if you really had a goal, you could, you could achieve that goal. Right. It felt like, and, and I think you really learn how to rely on, um, in a state of faith where you're constantly relying on heavenly father to help you out. And for me in my, as I kind of came back from, I was like, man, I could do all sorts of things. And it seems like entrepreneurship is kind of like with enough hard work and faith, like you could do some pretty anything you could do anything you wanted to do, you know, mm-hmm. see anywhere in the world you want to see. Um, not necessarily. I'm probably not great with authority, I guess is <laughs> probably part of it. Like maybe okay. I wouldn't love, I don't know. I haven't actually worked for, I haven't had a normal job. Right. So yeah. I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe I'm selling myself short. Maybe I'd be a great employee. I have no idea. But at some point I don't, you know, you kind of realize like I can, whatever you want to dream or think you can like just do it, like give it a shot. And the mission had me experience that. And after the mission I got together with some companions and we kind of, it felt like just, even though we it took us a long time, to stop calling each other elder. Right. Right. Uh, we did, it was the same concept of work ethic and self-improvement and just like trying hard things. I set a goal, uh, probably, you know, about four months after we got back, me and my friend, David Casteller, we started Stellar Services. That was a perfect blend of Casteller and Keller. It was, uh, It was. Uh, it was uh, I mean, everybody's got to start some landscaping company. So it was uh, uh aerating company, right? And in like four weeks, we had enough to pay for our semester and all of our plane tickets to go to Hawaii for BYU Hawaii there. And, and I was like, man, like, I guess I got just enough of the drug to realize like you really, you can kind of get whatever you want if you work hard and uh, don't give up. you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so that was the plan right after the mission. You, you started this business in, in order to get to college and, and you got accepted at BYU Hawaii and that was the plan.
1: Yeah. I got to BYU Hawaii and uh, it was, I mean, Bay Hawaii is such a fun place. It's not where you go to really get academically studious, okay?
0: Oh, okay. God. <laughs> <But, laughs> I'm sure their administration may have a... a, a I know. We, we, I'm sorry. We should
1: definitely well, have <laughs> no, to edit that from the script here. But, but the reality is, like, it was it was way fun. I went out there. We went out, and uh, we loaded up. I took, you know, it was. I started just going, we weren't sure if we are going to stay there for permanent or for sh- short term, uh, that was back when you could still go for short term. Mm-hmm. So I loaded up with like nine credit hours for a semester and we, and you know, Dave and I got, we got into like, uh, probably like seven or eight different clubs and it was just like super fun. Like try to just like consume as much of the campus as you could. And, uh, and it was awesome. We had a lot of fun and I realized though that I, I needed to get off the rock I needed to go back to the states I grew up in Salt Lake and it's kind of like my job just to hate BYU growing up like I'll be honest <laughs> with you not but not like, really. I didn't even know why I just knew that if I I needed the right answer if I was hanging out with anybody in high school it was like oh you you're going to the why you're like a Peter Priesthood sellout like I had to like <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so after it was interesting, because after my mission, I had all these, I met these really great people on my mission and I, uh, and there's so many of them were going to BYU and I was like, man, maybe I should like try out that BYU thing, you know? Yeah. Cause I went to the U before my mission. And then, uh, after we went to BYU Hawaii and I was like, well, that was really fun. I really, there was a lot of things I really liked about it. I'm like, I want to try to get into BYU Provo. So we got into BYU. I got into BYU Provo and, uh, and I loved that experience. It was, it was, I loved my experience at BYU Provo and as much as I grew up again, thinking there was like an iron curtain between Salt Lake and Provo, I'm supposed to hate Provo. Like, I actually really liked Provo yeah. and uh, there's a lot of really, really good things about Provo.
0: Yeah. Um, and were you always a pretty sharp student? Like once uh, you're in school and
1: so in high school, I was a really bad student. Right. Like in high school, I remember just thinking like, man, if I could get, if I could graduate at three, five, that would be like, that'd be awesome. I mean, my my parents, my siblings were great students. Like I said, my dad was like, it's very intelligent. Like get your homework done. Always available if I needed a tutor, but I tried to avoid doing too much homework with my dad because I didn't want to actually understand what was going on. I just wanted the answer. Yeah. You know? And so, um, so my senior year when I did the IB program at, at West High, which is an like international baccalaureate, right? So it's like uh-huh. kind of you can take some extra classes, a bunch of AP classes, a bunch of IB stuff. And uh, I, my senior year, I had I was busier than I ever was, and I was like, I wonder if I could actually get good grades. Like, could I get a four O? I wonder if I could even do that, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I started trying to see if I could do that, and I got I got good grades my senior year. And then I got pretty good grades before I left my mission. And when I came back to school, school kind of turned into like more of a game. I don't think I learned as much in school as I could have, but I learned how to get good grades.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure I was many teachers like worst nightmare on some things. <laughs> I learned how to get good grades and they gave me, cause it paid for my schooling. Good grades paid for school. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. And I was really, I got really lucky too, like, you know, like, I um, got some scholarships that really helped pave the way. And so I do plan, I got to get scholarships back someday because it was really helpful. And uh, and it was really, so I got good grades, but I never, I tried not to let school get in the way of my education in college, right? So I would play the game, but I really wanted to have as much experience as I could. So I did lots and lots of internship credit and um, traveled, uh kind of all over the world where I, I'd make enough money to go pay for my habit to go try some crazy venture somewhere and, uh, and tried to get my schooling done at the same time. So it took me a little bit, I think I still graduated in like four years, but near the end I was really dragging my feet cause I wasn't married yet. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, need to, I need to find someone. So, uh, so I, so, so I definitely spent, um, I think it took me four years probably. At, I was probably BOU for three years. Um, but I definitely dragged my feet near the end.
0: Yeah. And then uh, you did business there at, uh, at DUIU as well? Like, so, uh, so that's I did international your studies, actually. Okay.
1: it's like the general study of the world, right? <laughs> like if you want to like be broad in your studies, they, don't, they actually don't offer it anymore. I think it's too broad for the likes of that. But, but I, I did international studies and I did a minor in Asian studies. And also in business, so I did a minor in business. And like I said, I was I was always dinking around with some venture on the side during college. Like that's kind of what paid for. I mean, it was kind of dosy doing from one project to the other.
0: Yeah, and it was just a variety of things you did during different <coughs> yeah, so like, businesses. A lot of people
1: may remember the Google Arbitrage days when you could like do AdSense and AdWords, and you kind of find. I mean, I had my brother and I, we had like a little network of different uh, services that we provided online insights for like mesothelioma and uh, credit repair and uh, you name, whatever, whatever keywords are paying out high, uh, high amounts. uh, We would kind of set up a website about that. And then we'd optimize it for people to click uh, off the page. And that was pretty good. You know, like, I was working only about 10 hours a week. And most of that was just like monitoring how much money we were making. Uh-huh. And, and we were making about five grand each, you know, a month for just like mostly just making stuff up. It felt like, I mean, it wasn't completely making stuff up. It felt like making stuff up. Yeah. yeah. But you're, and yeah. Uh, and then as I was going, <clears throat> I really wanted to get into see the world more. So we kind of rolled right into I started a little consulting company with some other missionaries. bunch of young young people who said we're going to go back to Asia and teach them how to like fix their brochures so they read like somebody from the West would want to, to read. Let's go help them fix that, and we're going to go. We had this great idea; there was such a need for it. We're going to go do that over in Asia. And so I went back there, and uh, that is not that was not, that was not something people really wanted to pay for. I oh, wow. as well, and not like in a sustainable way. And so, um, we got back into, from coming back from that, it got into commodities, plastics, trading commodities, plastics. So there's a lot of manufacturers over in Asia that were looking to get into the U S market.
0: And this is all during your college years, your yeah, undergrad.
1: It was all during the college years. I was still, oh, wow. I was, I was probably a junior during that. And then, so we started trying to, I went to all sorts of trade shows all over the country, repping for plastics for these guys over in Asia. And we had finally landed a really big deal in California with a big fruit grower. And when the plastic film came over and they kind of thermoformed it, you know, vacuum formed it into the trays, the trays started popping. About one in five trays just popped. So we were like at first we were like, we were so excited we landed this big contract, we were gonna make like, you know, a hundred grand net profit for these two kids that were it was like awesome. We we're so we thought we were just like the big deal, you know? And, uh, but when that thing, when that product went South and we were the American representatives and the Asian companies were like, well, we're not giving you your money back. Right. And the local companies here are like, well, we can't use the film, you know? So we kind of escaped from that one, like by the skin of our teeth, uh, with like, Pretty close to break even. We pretty much everyone agreed to disagree and walk away from the deal, but we still had personally guaranteed our leases and our little office space just there in Orem, you know, the old word perfect business park. And so we're like, man, we have no idea how we're going to make rent. Like, I don't have a job. We don't have, I mean, we don't have a job. We don't have income. Like, uh, I spent pretty much everything I ever made at that point. and And so we ended up, I had a bunch of leftover, we were. I was just starting my senior year and I had a bunch of leftover textbooks. And so like, well, let's go and my, you know, we had to cover rent. So I was like, we'll go hawk textbooks and see if we can't um, cover our rent from that. And it was interesting, the process of going, I went, went to the bookstore and uh, they were going to offer us like 20 cents on the dollar for some books. And I was like, man, that's, that's junk. I paid, you know, you kind of, you like treat your books like they're good pets. At some point you paid so much money for them. You you (laughs) animate them with life and personality. Like, I don't want to give you my books. Like I'm not giving you my books. Uh, They're like, well, we'll take these ones. And, uh, and then they were only going to touch a really small portion of my books. So they're going to pay me nothing and touch only a small portion. It was really a frustrating thing because I spent good money on those books. And so it was interesting. So I was like, ah, so I called up the church and and DI and I was like, well, I have all these leftover books. Like, are you going to take these books? Uh, will you take the books? And they said, no, we discontinued that program. Go find somebody else to give the book. So I started calling around and saying, well, Hey, i and I started looking online. I saw there was value in my books online. There was some, some of my books still had real value and other of my books, maybe they don't have value in the U S but somebody's got to want, I spent 200 bucks on this book. somebody has got to want it. So it's a long story to say that in a short period of time, we actually said there's a bit of a arbitrage here between these surplus books and, some can be resold and some can be recycled and some can be donated, right? Uh-huh. And so, my buddy is that we were, you know, that we had done we did a lot of uh, startups with. He was like, Well, let's just go knock door to door, see if we can get people to give us their surplus books. And maybe on scale, we can do this and uh, cover our rent and uh, make the world a better place, kind of thing, right? So we we went out one Saturday morning, just knocked on people's doors, said, "Hey, we're collecting books. We're going to recycle, resell, or donate the books. Um, uh, would you trust us with your surplus books?" And we got a whole bunch of books,
0: tons wow. of books. Uh, these were just books people had on a bookshelf that they weren't planning on selling back to. Just like leftover it, books, it was like yeah.
1: people. I mean, I went through a. This was a neighborhood. This was not dorms. This was oh, a neighborhood. okay. All right, it's out there in orm by our office because we're like we need. So our office. So really quickly. <laughs> I mean, I totally believe in beginner's luck, right? Because I never knocked doors like that ever again, ever, even though I lost tons of money trying it. But we ended up turning our converting our office to um, this worldwide book drive, is what we called that venture, worldwide book drive. And we were gathering surplus books, recycling, reselling, and donating the books. And literally, if you walked into our little sub subleased office space, we had books stacked to the ceilings. It was totally a fire hazard. Uh, they did end up kicking us out of that building because we had too many books in our <laughs> office space. We're like, but they let us out of our lease. That was like the main thing, right? Um, and it was really scrappy startup. I mean, we didn't. We were had no money. It was like startup from scratch. And we would actually go to Harmons and get, you know, their paper bags for their produce. We would say, huh? hey, we go buy some produce and say, can we get this other stack? We take like a stack of like fifty bags or a hundred bags. <laughs> and we would like literally wrap our books with that to ship them in the mail.
0: Oh my goodness, wow.
1: Yeah, you don't get good reviews doing that we learned, right? But we did it. Like and it was kind of funny cuz that venture, I mean in the end it was we took we always took it really seriously the commitment that we were going to have to donate the books, you know? Like and that was expensive and you got to really find who would take the books and do good with them, right? Huh. And so but um and that business went through all sorts of ups and downs, but we did end up donating over 2 million books from that little operation. And we ended up selling it to the nation's largest retailer of used books, a company called ThriftBooks. books. Like if you go online and buy a book on Amazon, there's a good chance that, um, seven of the eight or five of the eight top searches on Amazon are actually different brands of this company's thrift book. So, oh, really? so it, was a, it was a good experience. And that when that business did kind of evolve. And we, I did, we did sell that business. Wow.
0: And this is all during college.
1: Yeah, so the we didn't the business was not successful during college, but I did right before graduating with my undergrad. Uh, I did rack up about forty thousand dollars of credit card debt and was losing three thousand dollars a month through Worldwide Book Drive. Wow! Uh, when when it came time for graduation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So-
1: What the heck did I get myself? Most people would get a house back then. You could get half a house for 40 grand in Provo. And I had nothing to do, but a whole bunch of people's payroll that I covered.
0: Yeah. Yeah, This is such an interesting path. Obviously maybe a little atypical than uh, compared to other, you know, uh, uh, stories we've had on, on the podcast. But I mean, I just love the, I mean, there's so much education going on, obviously the traditional education and the classroom and you're learning and you are getting the grades and whatnot. And then, outside, you know, with these, uh, these arbitrage efforts that you're trying to pay the bills. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you may find that was even more valuable during those college years of learning business, right? Oh, for sure. I, I, uh,
1: I've definitely, there's some things you just can't learn unless Again, entrepreneurship is a very different path um, from other places. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in entrepreneurship. And I don't think you get entrepreneurship from reading a book, you get it from applying the book. Right. Mm. So yeah, man, I tell you, there was a lot of, I learned all sorts of things about finance and debt and payroll and payroll taxes. And in a very short period of time, like I learned about 10,000 things you shouldn't do when starting a business.
0: (laughs) Wow. So, and, uh, so did you graduate uh, without being married?
1: Uh, yeah. So technically I graduated without being married. I did, but, but you uh, were maybe I, met, I met the girl of my dreams, um, in the beginning of 2005. So just like in the beginning of like, so my, it's kind of like my last period of time before it was my last real solid semester. And I, I met this girl and you know, I was, um, I was very kind of direct and a bold personality to begin with. And, <laughs> I had a very receding hairline to, as the next step in that <laughs> equation. And I'm sure she was very, just like totally freaked out by this guy who talked like so big, was willing and dared to try anything. Um, so I chased her, I chased her solid for a year and a half, um, which in promo time, that's like 10 years. It's you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, not <Isn't that>
1: true. <laughs> so I chased her and, uh, and, you know, we did. We got married about a year after I had graduated.
0: Okay. So, what did she? Uh, did she know what, what she was walking into? Is with the, your entrepreneur spirit and the the hustle he had going on? Or
1: yeah, you know, she to her to her deep credit, right? She it was very much eyes wide open dating me the whole time, and and that was part of the thing where I was just like, man, I just know. I was like, I was ready to marry this girl after our second date. Like there's, I was like, I'm there. And she was like, you, you realize like you're a tall order of all the things that go on in your life and how you see the world. And, um, but you know, it's kind of funny. Like I I would say, so she was eyes wide open. And, uh, now that we've been married for 16 years and have seven kids and one on the way, I can tell you that she's, uh, we kind of have just we still kind of joke about all the dates we went on, all the conversations we had, because you know, I think our lives have encountered a lot of the things we we in our wildest dreams that we thought we would encounter, we've kind of had a chance to experience those on some level. So yeah.
0: All right. So with hindsight here of your, of your, your undergrad years, uh, if you were speaking to, to a room full of, uh, you know, aspiring professionals and even entrepreneurs, like, w- would you recommend this, this path or, or the way you went through college? I mean, what-
1: <laughs> you know, I think I would say for the right personality, like I would I, there's a lot of things I do. I always do recommend, right? Like I always recommend people trying to miss the first week of class. I think that's a waste of time. I think there's so many other cool places you can be and things you can do during the first week of class. Okay, and probably you're going to have to edit a lot of these things that I'm saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> hey. I always, so I always encourage that, and I always also encourage people to take off, take off uh, your spring semester. Go to school like during – excuse me, take off the winter semester, whatever they call it. Take off January to April, right? That's the cold time in Provo, and it's not that exciting, uh, and it's really busy, and everybody's kind of tired and burned out. Fall is always exciting because everybody was there. And the spring-summer, if you did um, – when you do school during spring-summer, the campus is a lot less empty. You get a lot more time and attention from TAs and teachers. Um, yeah. And then I, I always – I do think it's helpful for people. Anybody that's like, I probably lean towards if you think you're interested in something, try it and go do it and you volunteer to do it for free. I worked for free in so many places um, that I was never like, I never had this entitlement. Like I am entitled to X amount of dollars in exchange for my hours. Right. What I was always told is like, I'm entitled to learn something. And if I, was interested in it I'd just go and do it you know even after we got married I and I was having this business I was always interested in radio for example hmm. and I by chance met this group that in Provo that had a radio station that uh, I was like well can I be like a free intern and just work for you and they, they looked at me kind of like cocked eye and said yeah sure but we're not going to pay you I said no I don't want to get paid he says, and if you're late, you're fired. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I, I showed up there. I did that for about six months, just kind of learning the ropes. I was late many times, and he never fired me to his credit. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting because, like, I learned that as I, I just gained that experience. It was just kind of fun. So I'm like, if you want to learn something, go do it and create the type of framework within your schooling that lets you do that. Schooling is, like, the best comfort blanket. Like, like the economics of life are suspended while you're a student. Hmm. like anything kind of goes. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> okay. you can be poor and you can do whatever. That's totally fine. And so I'm, I don't know, I would encourage that to nice. just
0: explore that. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, um, and this plays into some of the principles he sent me. The first one is nothing in is the best way to guarantee nothing out. Right. And that's sort of what you're talking about here is you're putting a lot into your life, your experience, your businesses and whatnot in college. And you got a lot out of that, but if you don't put anything in it, is that How would you expound on that?
1: No, I think that's a great point. You know, I, I'd have to say, I really have to give credit to um, a friend, Alan Hawkins. This is kind of his principal. So one of the nice things about, so I ended up, some of our businesses took off and I lived in Provo for 15 years, right? So I lived right in the shadow of BYU for right in South Campus there for a very, very long time. And in doing that, you know, you meet a lot of people in Provo, you can stay in the same place and you'll meet hundreds of people because they all come through wherever you're living, right? And um, and Alan, the principal really uh, in, in a conversation I had with him, I said, hey, he's kind of coming closer to the end of his career. What's the big what's your, your big lesson learned? Because his his whole focus was the fact of saying, hey, he was studying government programs that were intended to strengthen the family. And the question was which of all the different programs that go on strengthens family the most was it you know this program with big brothers big sisters was it this program with whatever place Mm -hmm. and i said well man that's that's a that's i'm like on the edge of my seat tell me what did you discover which plan was it he says well to be completely honest with you he says you're probably going to hate my answer but the answer is that it's not really statistically significant the difference between all the different programs and there's a broad variety of programs yeah He says, the biggest difference is if somebody, whatever program they enrolled in, did they actually do it? If you do the program, he says, then you'll get a big output. And and that's something that kind of has struck with me in a lot of stuff. Execution is number one. You want to fail a class, don't show up to class, right? That's Mm -hmm. easy. You want to get an A in class, but you want to get a good grade in class, show up to class, right? So if you want to fail a test, don't take the test. That's guaranteed. If you want to excel on the test and take the test but you can iterate through it, right? You can find it. So when he said that, I kind of, this is actually a very simple concept. Uh, but I think it's huge. I think it's a a really big concept. I think if in life, you name it, like you have, you know, if you have challenges in relationships or in, in a startup or in an investment or, um, you know, in what, in a, Church calling, or whatever you name whatever the issue is, whatever the challenge you're faced with, and the real simple thing is put something in. Mm -hmm. You meet a lot of people who like they don't get something out, and you discover it's because they quit halfway through, or they, you know, they they never tried to begin with because they knew they were failed, they were doomed to fail before they started. So I think uh, this concept of And even in fact, like, you know, we went through COVID. We went through all this stuff recently. And there's a lot of, there's just so much conflict and things going on in the world. And even in families, I know lots and lots of people who are struggling with relationships in their families, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, whatever is going on, because somebody has a different opinion about the vaccine or somebody has a different opinion about, um, you know, wearing masks or somebody had a different opinion about, Black Lives Matter or whatever, whatever you name your big event that we've gone through in the last two years. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because you talk to these people and a lot of them like their solution is, well, I'm just going to stop talking to that person, <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah. And I'm like, well, then you're guaranteed to get nothing out. You know? Like If you stop, if you stop engaging, you'll get nothing. And do you really want nothing in whatever thing you're about to get nothing from? Do you really, is that really the outcome and the output that you want? You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, so did you, when did the idea of MBA school come around?
1: You know, I'm probably, I'm probably another statistic of people who (laughs) got a patriarchal blessing that challenged them to get an education and to get, you know, as much education as I could, so to speak. And so I always thought I would get some level of higher education. And, uh, you know, it's, kind of funny like i originally because I, was, I took this kind of less traditional route of uh, the startup world when i actually applied for byu when i finally came around i was like oh i'm an, I'm an entrepreneur but i really do want to get an, a degree i want to figure out i want to get an advanced degree my parents education has always been important for them and i think probably i've had i had some level of FOMO right like I had total fear of missing out like what are these people learning in these magic rooms of MBA right (laughs) if I had an MBA then maybe I wouldn't make so many stupid mistakes in all my businesses you know Uh that was kind of my thought and and I had a friend who got his MBA at Babson University which is like at the time was ranked number one in entrepreneurship for 10 years I think they're somewhere in the top they're always in the top three you know, so, and uh, and I was really super interested in social entrepreneurship, so social impact, and so you know the Skoll Foundation at um, in Oxford was a big deal. Stanford was really big on that, and so it was funny. So when I went to get my MBA, my businesses were kind of kicking my butt. I wasn't sure if I was really an entrepreneur, but I thought an MBA would be a good backup option. Um, if I needed that. And again, my patriarchal blessing echoes in my head. I'm like, I should really, I should, I should get this degree. Yeah. So at the time I was, the business was still losing money. We were pregnant with our first child and I had picked up a job with one of my, I had a buddy who was starting a rock chip repair company. If you've ever known what that is.
0: <laughs> like I, on the corners uh, of gas stations and, yes, and with I, the, the tents
1: and tents. Or whatever something like that i ran 11 tents with this kind of scrappy squad and i was like there studying my g map book while cars were coming up and trying to get fixed and people were calling me because they just broke somebody's windshield like so i did it was like oh it was a big sacrifice to go get the nba and it was kind of this for me it was really a journey of self-discovery to find out like hmm. You know, what what is out there that I don't really know and 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 who is out there that I that I should know that's gonna help me figure this out. I figure out this like navigating business world, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah. so I went I applied for the full time program. Is that uh, BYU or? Uh, so I applied to a lot of different uh, places. Sorry. I applied to lots of different places. I applied, okay. uh, actually I didn't apply to lots of places. I applied to two places. Excuse me. <laughs> I applied to Babson university and I applied to BYU. I looked at a lot of the other programs, but they just didn't look like they would fit with entrepreneurs or with my family. Right. Cause I knew I was going to, we had uh, a baby on the way and, and I mean, I remember going to, um, Pennsylvania's MBA, you know, At the Warden School of Business, and they're like, "Hey, just so you know, we—if you want to come to our program, if you think you can hack it, just—we want you to leave your wife and kids for six months, and then they can come join you again." Oh wow! And I was like, "There's no way I want that." I like, so I was like, maybe this dream of like, because I always thought I wanted to go to Warden. And I went to like their get to know the school, and I was like, maybe I don't know if I need that. I guess again, I have a lot of respect for everybody who's been through that program. It, it, they take a real top cream of the crop to get there. Um, and, but when and and you know, maybe the guy was he was probably just using scare tactics in the initial interviews, but it worked for me. I was like, I'm not coming here. I want a family, and I, I've already my my cake's kind of baked on this one. I'm not gonna back yeah. out. So so I applied to Babson. I applied to BYU. I got accepted to Babson. And they gave me a really healthy scholarship. So it was actually pretty competitive uh, to go there. And then I got accepted to, and then I, and then I applied to BYU. And in the interview at BYU, um, it was a really interesting experience. Like they sent me down they're like, hey, you know what? You are in. You are exactly the type of person that we want. I thought it was like an interview, like I'm supposed to answer it right so I can get in. But they said, hey, everything's good. You're totally in. Let's just talk about planning your classes. And I was like, that's cool. But can I ask a quick question? Cause it says this little thing, you can't do business, your own businesses. The first year you're an undergrad in the full-time program. Can I get like, cause I want to be honest. I want to make sure that I'm not lying. Oh, you know that the chalk circles, a real thing, maser circle. So I'm like, so I'm like, so can I just get a pass? Just let me do the full-time and still work on my businesses. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, good feeling gone in that room. The guy's like, no, we're not doing that. We don't do that. You can't do that. Just drop your businesses and you're going to be the world's perfect consultant. You're going to make tons of money. Like we got this huge track, you know, we line you up with all the big consultant firms. You're going to be, you're going to place you. You're going to make tons of money. And I was like, I know, but I just think I'm actually kind of wired for entrepreneurship. And, and I really just want to, I want to go to you, but I want to do this. um, I want to be able to do my business. He says, well, that's not an option at all so i said okay so can i do the executive program he says no you're way too young for the executive program uh you don't want you should apply come come back in a few years and do that and i kind of got in this fight with the dean of the school at the time because i'm like you why are you not letting me in i have plenty of credentials i have plenty of i'm making more money than a lot of other people let me in this class let me participate and he said no you were and we ended like in war mode like it was like bumping chest and both people were flush and angry. Um, oh, wow. I walked out of there. And I was like, "Man, screw this! I'm not going to BYU. I'm gonna just we're gonna figure something else out." You yeah? uh, know. To his credit, though, I got to his credit. He called me up in like two weeks later. He says, "You know, I'm thinking a lot about our conversation." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, me too. You want to talk some more?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "He said if you ever want to apply for the executive program, you can do it. We'll accept your application." Oh wow! So I did it. And uh, And it was good. I really enjoyed it. I, <clears throat> for me, it was like I said, it was a good learning journey. I, I discovered I really am kind of wired. I really am an entrepreneur, and it's, uh, I do like the challenge of building something new. I appreciate the people who are really structured, and um, I appreciate a lot of I appreciate the values and the skill sets that the MBA teaches. For me, what I learned though is, I learned I paid a ton of money for reading books which i really like and i paid a ton of money for meeting new people right and so for me since my i got my mba um, my the amount of books that i consume has doubled and tripled I, I don't care about the cost of a book if there's something that's like useful knowledge in there i want to i want to put it in my head somehow and if i really want to meet people like i feel no inhibitions i'm so happy to take to find anybody I'll track them down and take them to lunch and try to go on a trip with them or do something like, again, I've a ton of money from MBA. So, uh, (laughs) I'm now I'm not afraid to spend money on all sorts of other things, which have, which has really deeply benefited my life. So.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I want to pivot back to some of these principles you sent me that the keystone habits are the key to unlocking your potential. Unpack that one.
1: So I think, um, you know, if you look at how nature works, like how life works, it's all about repeated patterns, right? Like I remember once I watched this documentary on Nova on uh, fractals, right? And just the concept that everything in nature is one small pattern repeated over and over. And if you take a picture of really The big pattern, like the forest, for example, is really kind of reflective of any tree in the forest. If you cut down a tree in the forest, look at all of its measurements and its dimensions, you can actually get a sense for what the forest looks like. That's one of those kind of weird things that shows up in nature. And so I think in our own lives, as as I look at where I've been successful and where I have not been successful, the lessons I've learned through failure, right, is... It's probably because um, whatever patterns I'm trying to repeat, I'm, I'm picking the wrong pattern to try to scale out and repeat. And the nice thing about, the nice thing is you kind of dig in and you say, well, let's take this concept of pattern and let's just call it habit, right? Habit is the most amazing thing because at some point, it's, if habit works for you. I mean, everybody has, a, has like arrived at home, from a commute and not been sure how they got there. Right. Like it took like, or they'll be supposed to have been driving somewhere else and they end up in the wrong place because their habits kicked in and they're just like, Oh, I've, I've had lots of times where I'm driving on the freeway in the past. Um, and it's just like, "Mm, what was I thinking about? How did I arrive where I'm going? And there's, it's really, I mean, Elon Musk is spending a lot of dollars and time trying to get cars to drive by themselves, right? So it's not an easy thing to do, and yet we can do a lot of our commuting with very little mind power because we built so many habits around it. So anything you can kind of turn into a habit kind of in some sense starts to work for you. It starts to really, it takes everything up a level. And not all habits are created equal, right? So sometimes you meet people that like are so excited and they tell you like the 15 habits that they're trying to fix in their lives or trying to adopt. And I'm like, I think that is... You will run yourself ragged. I think that the real key is to find those those habits that have tremendous amounts of um, asymmetric uh, outcomes from the related habits. Like you know, if you if anybody Google's Keystone habits, they'll see them online. But there's a handful of habits that show up all over the place. Nobody can explain why they have such a profound impact, but they do. Uh, A simple one is making your bed, right? They'll show you that people who make their bed are substantially more wealthy, substantially more educated, substantially happier than people who don't make their beds. And it's like, why wouldn't you make your bed, right? That's a pretty easy habit to try to figure out. And uh, and it's other things like planning. Are you doing daily planning? Are you eating dinner with your family? There are some of these things like, if you can say, I want to have the perfect family, and you could come up with like, 25 different habits you're supposed to build in your life. But really the number one thing you can find is you eat together as a family, like every night or five nights a week or whatever. And so it's like, if you focus on, if you find these points in life, life can be very, very complex. And it should be because we're complex. People are, there's a lot of facets to people, but we have to rely on these shortcuts, these heuristics to help us um, kind of get To wherever we're going. And those shortcuts really, I think if you start to gain awareness around the types of habits that have way more implications than just the habit itself, it's like, you don't make your bed because your bed is somehow going to change your life, but you make your bed because your life changes when you make your bed. Right. So figuring out those types of habits, um, I think is, there's so much power in that. I don't think you could, I don't think any time is wasted talking to friends, family, loved ones, about the habits in your life and looking at which habits could really make a difference and just pick one.
0: Yeah. And those uh, keystone habits probably change from whether you're in school or whether you're, in or you're building a business or right.
1: I totally agree. I think the concept behind a keystone habit is that and I think I'd probably say life, life is evolutionary, right? Maybe people misinterpret that and we got to edit yeah. that too. But life is, Life is evolutionary. And I think that when we come into this, it's like you should have you should have you should be in the habit of self-reflection. That's probably a keystone habit, right? And it's not just it doesn't just mean writing your journal. It means you gotta actually reflect and then refine on that. You gotta Yeah. So you should be talking to people and I think that they will change. Like if you've really nailed the bed thing and you're no longer working there, your your bed is getting made in the morning and you don't even know how it got made. You don't remember it getting made, because it just got made. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah, then I'd say, go pick another one.
0: Yeah. So is there a, a current keystone habit that you're focused on or that's got you excited at this phase in your life?
1: Man, that's a good question. I would say my keystone habit that I'm really trying to figure out is meditation. Hmm. Like, and it's not and let's just even call it let's call it mindfulness, right? Right. Mindfulness. Like if I'm, if I'm walking somewhere or if I'm talking to somebody and I, I need to take a deep breath and feel the breath. I need to, um, in some sense, I found that by, if I can get this habit of really zoning into the moment that I'm in, which is kind of hard for my mind because my mind likes to go lots of places, as you could imagine. So as I zone in, like I find deep fulfillment and I'm discovering a lot of other things in my life are kind of, kind of fall into place. So for me, finding time and opportunities to meditate, whether that's like a fixed sit down, lay down, or if I'm walking and I just want to make sure I'm doing really hard to listen to the sounds around me or smell the air that I'm breathing through my nose, that kind of
0: thing. Love it. Awesome. Well, uh, I think this, uh, this last principle would be one that good to, uh, good to end on, uh, And it was one sort of the the bonus one, but I I think it resonates in this discussion. And that is no one does it alone. What do you mean by that?
1: You know, I think in all the various ventures that I've been involved with and as an entrepreneur, but I think anybody, we love the underdog. We love this feeling that like we did it and it was kind of us. And it's really easy. And we want to be validated. I think, I think, humans want to be validated. that They did it. We did it. I did it. Right. And I think if we take a minute though, to really recognize this, I was reading a book by the Dalai Lama and he kind of mentioned that the fundamental nature of the human journey is that we can't, like we require a mother to provide sucker from the time we're born. Like we are by nature dependent on other people. And like, from our most rudimentary relationships. And I think it's easy in time to think that we did it on our own, especially in this kind of us versus them world that seems to be continually coming up. It's like we, you know, somebody's. we like to think we're on an Island, but we're not, you know, you take name, name the movement, whatever really strong movement, environmental, social, or otherwise. And there's so much that tries to divorce one group from another group. And yet you can't divorce those. Like everybody who's marching in the anti-petroleum parade is wearing plastics on their body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Like everybody who's saying that, you know, some group is taking advantage of them is, has been benefited somewhere by some group. Like life is like, if we can actually recognize if we can embrace the fact that we really are dependent on people and spend time celebrating that, identifying like who we're dependent on, first of all, we should thank them because gratitude is a great habit, right? It's a great keystone. So we should thank that person and, uh, and express to them and just recognizing that seeing how the dots connect. It's amazing. I am the recipient of so much in my life. I can take credit for very, very few things. Like, I give credit to God. I give credit to my family. I give credit to my siblings, my friends, my business partners, um, my neighbors. Like, the only thing I can kind of take credit for is that I haven't quit on some things, right? And even in that sense, I still have to think. For whatever reason, I'm I'm really fortunate that I had the energy to not quit in whatever capacity. But but I have to. As we, as we look at this, like it's just the amount of doors that open up when you start saying, hey, I really am dependent on everybody and it's okay to give other people the credit and show them, like, help them be successful, help them succeed because you were a recipient of that. The world, that kind of pay it forward concept takes on a real dimension and, and it just opens more doors.
0: Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA society.